and I thought, this is the verse that I want to go to. And then when he finished last week, not that I would want to add something to his sermon, but when he finished last week, I felt like, okay, now we're ready to start another application of the fact that God is the creator of this universe and he rules over it and does what he will with it. So I want you to be thinking about particularly that second question today. What do you have that you have not received? Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to look into your word today. Thank you for the time you've spent with me and your Holy Spirit. And I just pray as we look into your word today that um, each one might benefit from the time spent that we would consider these things, that you would apply them to our hearts, and that we might walk away more grateful people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So that focus in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, is really, um, I think, a high point in Paul's argument about a problem that's taking place in Corinth. It really goes all the way back to... Um, chapter 3, and I want to just take a small portion of this and look at the broader context, and then we'll really hone in on those verses. But in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9, it says this, but brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human ways? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he nor who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. The sermon is titled, The Man Worshiper, and we can see here in, in chapter 3 a particular problem. We see that the, the Corinthians are immature. They're described as infants. Um, there is jealousy. There is strife amongst them. He says you are of the flesh. And they are elevating their Christian leaders, Paul and Apollos, but they're also seeking to elevate themselves as they kind of divide off. I follow this guy, and I follow this guy, and this makes me better than you are. Now, the, the man worshiper, we might say, okay, that title applies to those who have a wrong view of Christian leaders and worship the man rather than worshiping God, and if that's the case, then, okay, stop doing it, amen, we are dismissed. I think there's something more going on here. The I follow Paul and I follow Apollos 
have to do with, I think, man worship, but not worshiping the other man, worshiping self. I think Paul is dealing with something broader in the subject, something that might require us to tune in a little bit more. Perhaps that man being worshipped is yourself. Perhaps that man being worshipped is myself. If we jump forward to chapter 4 and we we go to verse 6, he says this, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He's saying he's made the application of this broader point to himself and Apollos, as opposed to naming others that have pride issues there in the church. He's made the application to themselves, but he did this for the purpose that they would not be puffed up that they in themselves would not be puffed up in the way they view themselves compared to others, that they may not have an inflated view of self or another with the result of despising another. And herein lies the big problem at Corinth. That problem was the problem of pride. Now, Later in the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 10, verse 13, Paul's going to tell them that there's no temptation that has taken them, the Corinthian believers, but such as is common to man. They're not taken with a particular sin that's unique to them. There's no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man. And he goes on to say, but God is faithful that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make a way of escape. But the point is still there at the beginning, and that is the sin that is common to Corinth is the sin that is common to man. The Corinthian problem of pride is a human problem. It's a common problem. And it's a problem that seeks to rob the creator of his glory and ascribe it to self. Let me say that again. Pride is a problem that seeks to rob the creator of his glory and ascribe it to self. I would dare suggest that the default position of the flesh is to be a man worshiper. The default position of the flesh is to exalt self. So I think Paul really nails this in verse 7 with these three rhetorical questions. And I found as I dwell on these three rhetorical questions that my heart and my mind are turned to the goodness of God. It's it's a convicting text, but but it's a joyous text at the same time. We'll dig into verse 7 in a second, but let's just 
hop over that to verse 8 and look at the rest of the context real quick. So he, so he asks them those three rhetorical questions, and then he makes a comparison between their attitude and his attitude and Apollos' attitude as well. He's, he's speaking with great sarcasm here, and he says in verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to the angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. And he adds, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He was concerned with the issue of pride. He was concerned with the fact that the Corinthians thought that uh, they had really arrived. He's, he's not saying less is better. He, he's not saying you, you can't have some things. But they were glorying in the wrong things. And particularly, they were glorying in position. Their view of themselves as really something is not in keeping with the humility that God calls us to. It's not in keeping with the reality that any blessing we have should be attributed to God and not to self. So let's look at the three questions. I always like to answer rhetorical questions, not in a conversation, that's not always polite, but I think in my mind when I hear a rhetorical question, I think, oh, well, what's the answer to that? What is the person trying to get me to think by asking this rhetorical question? It is interesting that at the end of verse 6, that he, that he wants them that they may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, a reference um, not to any specific it is written text, but beyond the revelation of God, and that none of them would be puffed up. So to keep them from being puffed up, he asks a series of three questions where I want to spend the rest of our time today. The first question in the ESV says this, for who sees anything different in you? The NESB says, for who regards you as superior? But the NIV and the King James make quite a different translation. It says this, for who makes you different from anyone else? 
Now, depending on this first question, you would answer that differently. I, I think the, the context supports a who makes you different than anyone else type of translation. Who makes you different than anyone else? If it was who sees anything different in you, you might say, well, if I see something different in myself, that would be immature, you would be wrong. I see something special in myself. But I think he's asking the question, and it seems to fit better, who makes you different than anyone else? Are we different than someone else? is the first question. We're not different, super special, beyond the need of God's grace, maybe like the Corinthians started to lean towards. But we are very different from one another. We've been studying in Ephesians in Sunday school that God has unity within the body and he has a diversity of gifts. He makes us different. He gifts us differently. It's a fact that we are different. But who makes us different from one another? If the answer to the rhetorical question is, I make myself different. I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and therefore I experience these successes, and therefore I am Elevated in my eyes is one possible answer to who makes you different than anyone else. The other answer would be God makes me different than someone else. We are different. If you want to argue that one later, we can, we can talk about it. We are different. We are not all the same. God has not made us exactly the same. Look at your children. They're different, right? We see our, our children are different because God the Creator made them that way. God the Creator gave you your gifts, He gave me my gifts, He gives another person their gifts. Who, who made you different? The answer is, it is God. And when we see that God makes us different or unique, that God makes us the way he makes us, then it is not a cause for pride, but for praise. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. You're going to see differences and you're going to see unity. Now there are varying gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varying service, but the same Lord. There are varying activities, but the same God, who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. 
to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each individual as he wills. God is the sovereign creator. He has made you as he wills to make you. He has gifted you as he wills to gift you. And when we attack pride, we can say God doesn't make any junk. But you are special because God made you in his image and then he chose to gift you in special ways. It, it, it points to him. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians here, this is clearly speaking about spiritual gifts. Um, but if, if we were to go back to Ezra and Nehemiah and look at the rebuilding of the wall and the, and the building of the temple, what do we see? That there were skilled craftsmen that were selected for this and for this and for this. I believe God gives not only spiritual gifts, but that he creates us with natural talents, what we call natural talents. They're God-given talents, that he, he creates us. Pastor Tim pointed us last week to the text that, that tells us that uh, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God has made you different than other people, but that's not a cause of pride, that's a cause for praise. If I'm different because God made me that way, then what's the cause for pride there? That's my rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. What's the cause for pride in that? So if the question is, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, who makes you different than any other, then the answer would have to be God does. And to the extent that that can be used for his glory, then to his glory it should be used. The second question, and the one that really stuck in my mind, is what do you have that you have not received? If you get nothing else today, I hope you'll take that question and chew on it. As you walk through your week, as you have tasks in front of you, as you view the blessings of God, as you look at your family, as you exercise your gifts for the rest of the body, what do you have that you haven't received? It's an interesting question. It's an interesting test. Um, my Bible software had three or four verses in this section, and I looked them up, and I just went, yes, I like that one, I like that one, I like that one. So I just want to credit whoever wrote that software. But let me point you to three verses. James 1, 17. 17 and 18. What do you have that you have not received? He tells us to not be deceived, that sin's not from God. He tells us in verse 17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or, or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought forth by his word of truth, he brought us forth, excuse me, by his word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. He's talking about all good gifts come from God, but he's speaking here particularly of salvation, that, God, that that is a, a gift of God. But every good gift comes from God. John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, um, John the Baptist has progressed in his ministry, and now... Um, Jesus is on the scene and Jesus is baptizing in John chapter 3 and you go to verse 26 so some guys are going to come up and ask John about this what do you have that you have not received John 3 26 and they came to John and said to him rabbi he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness look he is baptizing and all are going to him John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John, this guy seems to be taking over. I thought you were the leader. A person cannot receive one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. John was saying, that's not my position. My position has been given to me from heaven that's his position. All should be going to him. Verse 28, you yourselves bear, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one, who has, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy, is mine, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What about this guy over here that's baptizing? That's his position. My position can only be the position that's been given to me from heaven. What do you have that you have not received? Finally, um, back in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 29. David didn't have the benefit of the question, what do you have that you have not received? But he sure had the benefit of the Holy Spirit because he's got a great answer for it. So in 1 Chronicles 29, we're coming to the end of David's life. David wanted to build the temple. Um, the Lord says, no, you're not going to build it. Your son will build it. And so David decides, okay, before I die, I want to set aside from the treasury those things that would be necessary so my son can build the temple. And so David gives out of the storehouse um, all kinds of gold. We're talking 3,000 talents. A talent is 75 pounds. You figure it out. This is several thousand pounds of gold, 7,000 talents of silver. And the people and the leaders, they give gold and they give silver and they give precious stones and they give iron and so forth. And it's all collected up and it's ready for the temple to be built. And so what does David do? 
David goes out and writes a book on how to do fundraising for a building program, right? Hey, it's time to write the book. He just put it all together. They got the money, they've got the gold, they've got everything, they're ready to build the temple. Look at what I've done, and he goes on the speaking circuit. Is that what David does? No. Look at what David does in verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord. He saw this provision and the generosity of the people, and he blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. And what's David's perspective on what he had done? Verse 14. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer this willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. See what he's saying? We, we just gave you what was already yours. All things come from you, and all we did was give you what is already yours. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for the building for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. What do you have that you have not received? David said, this is all what we've received from your hand and we return it to your hand. Salvation, position, wealth, power, might, all these things that contribute to human pride are graces and gifts of God that he bestows. What do you have that you have not received? I tried to apply this to various areas of my life. Sometimes if you want to sit down and, and hear what a marvelous journey God has taken Ruth on, I'd love to spend time just glorifying God and telling you what it's been. It's amazing. It's amazing the things that God has done in our lives. It's, it's wonderful to look at it. So then we look at successes. What do you have that you have not received, Brian? Different accolades. I've got some dusty awards in a box somewhere in my basement. Some newspaper clippings somewhere. What, have you had, what do you have that you haven't received? Where's, where's the boasting in it? I, 
I tried to take my mind down the vain path and trace it. We, we enjoyed a, a nice trip in the warm weather a few weeks ago. I, I think there was a time when I've taken a trip like that that I've sat on the deck of the cruise ship and thought it was somebody. Sorry. This time it was really echoing through my head. What do you have that you haven't received? And we sat there in the warm weather and I think God was pleased for us to be there. And we rejoiced in his goodness. Not that we were somebody, but that he chose to be gracious to us. Did I make the right investment? No, really, you did. Who gave you the wisdom to make the right investment? Who gave you the ability to have anything to invest to begin with? Oh, I learned some things from my father over the years. He shared his wisdom with me. Oh, who gave you that, Father? I've tested it through. What do you have that you have not received? Think of one thing. Can't think of one thing that we bring. I, I worked hard at it. Who gave you the energy to work hard at it? God did, but I was motivated to do it. Who gave you the motivation to do that? What do you have that you have not received? I, I think it's an attitude of the heart. And, and I can tell you for myself, it's an attitude of the heart that just causes me to praise God and to worship. I don't think it stops us from appreciating somebody's uh, efforts that they put forth. So God gifts an individual, they, they participate in the music team, they lead us in worship, that's their, their goal and desire, and it doesn't stop us from saying, you know, you... you you really have a nice voice, and I appreciate you bringing those particular songs today. The, the, the issue is in our heart. Are we worshiping them? No. Sometimes it may be spoken, sometimes it may be unspoken, but we know that that talent and that gifting is from the Lord, and it's for the good of the body. We know that they put forth effort, and we know that even that effort was made possible by the grace of God. So for the person receiving the compliment or to thank you at that point, it's, it's a matter of the heart. I, I'm not going to give you a little phrase. Well, if you say this phrase, then that means you're humble and everything's okay that somebody gave you a compliment. I think the rhetorical question, what have you had that you have not received is designed to penetrate the heart and to, and to check that heart attitude. I had a friend when I was in Bible college. He was a little awkward socially, and it was, you know, he heard a sermon once where the guy said he was doing better than he deserved. And so every time I would see him in the hall or something, I'd say, hey, how are you doing today? Better than I deserve. It was kind of awkward. You know, I was wondering how he was doing. And yes, theologically I understood he was doing better than what he deserved to be doing. And, but that was his, his standard answer. And 
sometimes I wondered if he was proud of how humble he was, that he was doing better than he deserved. I don't want to give you an answer that you can just plug in. If somebody gives you a compliment, I think sometimes it's appropriate to say thank you. Thank you. And you and I know that that gifting is from God, right? And sometimes that'll be spoken and sometimes that won't. But just check your heart. What, what's going on in here? One day he walked up to me and said, how are you doing today? I said, well, better than you deserve. <laughs> he seemed to take it okay. Maybe he was more humble than I thought. There's not a phrase that's going to hide if, in fact, you're elevating yourself in pride. There's no phrase you can put over the top of that. But there's not a phrase that you have to say every time you receive a compliment either. But if you know in your heart that this is how God has gifted you and that you're using your gifts for his glory, then, then that's enough. I had an interesting conversation with a young man from our church this week. He was... Um, well, anyways, I was admiring some of his work. He, he does nice work. He's a skilled, I would say, craftsman. And, and I was admiring his work. We were talking about it a little bit. And, and he shared with me that, that the project that I was admiring was something that he uh, really enjoyed doing. And we talked about it. And it turned out he's really thrifty and how he was able to do it and stuff. And it was, it was just cool. I walked away thinking about this going, yeah. God has designed him. I can see how he's made this way for the work that he does and for how, how th that's a way that God provides for his family. What do you have that you haven't received? He didn't slap some kind of Christianese phrase on top of that or anything. I knew from his heart. He, he was a humble guy. And yet he was glad to show what his skills and his talents were. There's not something that's going to just paste over it. It has to be, where's your heart? Is your heart saying, everything I have, I have received. And therefore, I give it willingly. The third question, again, is a rhetorical question. It says this. Then if you received it, which assumes that the answer to the, the second question was, there's nothing you have not received. If you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why are you acting like you didn't? Why, Corinthians, are you elevating yourself above others when everything you have, you've received? I like to answer rhetorical questions. Here's the answers I came up with. Ignorance. Maybe you never stopped and thought about everything I have, I've received from God. Maybe now this text will help you with that. Maybe it's immaturity. Now, I was a believer at times when I really thought I was something. I was immature. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his word. Pride might be why I act like I haven't received it. Self-deception. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Might be telling me I'm really something as compared to I've really received something. And for sure, our worldly influence. We want heroes all over the place in this world. Pride is something that's, that's elevated, that's encouraged. What do we learn today? God is a gracious and sovereign creator. 
He bestows his gifts on mankind as he sees fit. As he sees fit. Therefore, we should be humbled by his provision. There are no self-made men. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gracious gifts to us. The air we even breathe today is not deserved. Thank you for reminding us that everything we have is a gift from you. And may it be used for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.